Our guest today spent the better part of his career building and leading an elite internal research capability at a corporation. His role was leading an incredibly talented team of researchers to elevate the voice of the customer, allowing business units to make customer-centric decisions more quickly. He facilitated design sprints, working with cross-functional teams on everything from employer of choice initiatives, product and service enhancements, to breakthrough innovation and blue sky opportunities. He was my design thinking or human-centered design guru in learning how to solve community problems differently. In our years working together, I have really come to appreciate the role of empathy and applying human-centered design principles to my life, ultimately leading me towards a life of adventure with kids. He's an aspiring feminist father of three, an amateur yogi, a baseball enthusiast, and who is redefining traditional measures of success on a lifelong learning journey. Eden Weller, it's such an honor to have you today. Can't wait for this conversation. Welcome to Ordinary Sherpa. Thanks, Heidi. Thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, let's unpack this introduction of yours because it feels a little corporate-y. <laughs> so I just want to like understand what does all of this mean? So in your corporate experience, we talked a little bit about design thinking or human-centered design framework. Can you just break that down just a little bit? What does that actually mean? So the easiest way to describe it is it's a framework or tool set or mindset to innovate, to come up with new ideas, to get groups of people working together and thinking together. So it's a way, it's a way to have meetings. It's a way to come up with new ideas. It's a way to collaborate on issues and understand issues and challenges and opportunities differently. And what makes it unique and what makes it special is that it starts with empathy and you kind of unpack who you want to design for, what point of view and perspective you want to understand better. And then you go and you empathize together. And typically that's in the form of empathy interviews or observation with the audience or the target or the segment that you're looking to understand better. And then you get in a room and you unpack that together. And that becomes kind of the foundation for which you build. And it's that collaboration piece, which I think is important. So you're learning new things together. But it's a forum that makes it work, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. It's just bringing people together and then kind of building foundational knowledge together, forgetting what you thought, Mm -hmm. maybe uh, assumptions that you had, biases that you had, and then working through the process together. And I lead and facilitate those. The best way that I can kind of describe what that means, it can be done to understand a challenge better. It can be done to build something new. It can be done to look at your life differently and build a new life or reframe different things, taking other people's perspectives into view. Yeah. And even in my experience, so it's so easy. So I worked in the foundation in a social sector, right? Looking at problems in the social sector differently. And it's very tricky sometimes, I think, when you look at solving problems in a social sector, because we assume things about people's lives, right? We assume that if people were able to manage their money better, they wouldn't be in poverty. Or if we assume that if a female understood how uh, positive relationships look like, she wouldn't get into domestic violence scenarios. Like Those were the types of things that I realized. And it's very easy to jump to those conclusions. And so for me, I can't really even describe the experience, but empathy interviews were more than just pretending to walk in someone's shoes, right? It was not necessarily me projecting my thoughts and opinions on someone. It was sitting in this sometimes uncomfortable place with clients or with service providers and really feeling the feelings and listening as opposed to thinking, right? Because it's so easy when we're in conversations to like jump to our own opinions about things. So, you know, I think that 
we should probably dive deeper into empathy. And what does empathy mean? Is it something that, how would you describe empathy? I guess, you know, when you think about an empathy interview, how do you learn empathy or how do you practice empathy? Yeah, great question. So for me, empathy is around emotions. Emotions is at the root of empathy. And you mentioned feelings before, emotions and feelings. And those are difficult things. Those are difficult things to have conversations about oftentimes. I read a good book. It's The Art of Empathy by Carla McLaren, and she breaks it down into six essential aspects. And I think I'll walk through some of these because it makes sense briefly. Uh, she talks about emotion contagion. So that's where it begins, right? Our capacity to feel and share emotions. And then it moves into empathetic accuracy. So that's our ability to accurately identify and understand these emotional states, thoughts, and intentions. And those are kind of baseline foundational things. From there, an important one is emotion regulation. So that's our own ability to understand and regulate and work with our own emotions that are happening, kind of that self-awareness aspect to it. That's an important foundational piece. If you want to empathize with others, it's how can we regulate what's going on with our emotions? Mm -hmm. Perspective taking is the next kind of aspect here. And I think a really important one, imaginatively put yourself in the place of others see situations through their eyes, accurately sense what they might be feeling and thinking so that you can understand what they most want or need. Mm -hmm. The fifth is concern for others. Pretty straightforward. Ability to care about others. Straightforward from the sense of what it is. Sometimes difficult to put into practice. And then finally, perceptive engagement. So to make perceptive decisions based on your empathy and to respond or act or not act in a way mm -hmm. that works for others. So that is, are we willing to do something about this once we gain that empathy for others? And I think, you know, when you take the perspective of others, the point is not to ask yourself what you would do in their place. It's to try to understand what they would do. Yeah. So if your empathetic accuracy and your emotion regulation are strong, you'll have the emotional range and depth needed to kind of imagine those attitudes and expectations and intentions that may be very different from yours. Yeah. Thank you for that. I think that helps because I'm imagining, or at least, you know, as I look back on my journey, I don't know that I ever really was taught empathy. It feels like it's just a learned skill and you're hoping <laughs> that through caring, compassion, kindness type traits that we just assimilate into this empathetic culture. So I am curious, can empathy be taught? Is this something that, is it a skill that we can build? Are you kind of innately, if you're a more caring person, you're more empathetic? Like, is that a true statement or is that more of an assumption that I'm making right now? Yeah, it's interesting, right? We have math class and we have science class and we have art class and we have gym class. We don't have classes in school, in formal school at least, that talk about emotion and even how to feel those feelings and what's okay. I think a lot of that falls based on parents and families, potentially church groups or other maybe less formal ways. So it's not taught and there's a gap there. And I think there's a gap there then when it comes to feeling other people's mm. emotions and empathizing with others. It's a teachable, learnable skill, for sure. It takes practice. It takes being vulnerable, though, too, which is something that takes practice as well. Yeah, and sometimes we try to categorize even emotions into good or bad. Mm. Happiness is an easy one to talk about. Happiness and joy are easy emotions to talk about and to share and to feel. 
anger and anxiety and sorrow and sadness are more difficult. And sometimes Mm -hmm. it's even hard to let people share those feelings with others because they can be triggering for yourself. So I think it takes a fair amount of work to get there. But I would say lean in here, right? Mm -hmm. If we can be more empathetic as a society, as a people, as teams, as parents, as friends, do what we can to figure out how best to do this. Yeah. Thank you. I think that has been a skill that obviously, I don't know if you're ever an expert in any of this, right? (laughs) But it's definitely a skill I have been curious about and trying to cultivate in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of just life in general. I think my own life has been shaped by being empathetic, not only for others, because, you know, I like to describe myself as a, like, I care hard, right? So I don't always necessarily think of myself in some of these scenarios. I think of others. But as a parent, it's been really fascinating because I was realizing there were pieces of myself I was willing to give up in order to really understand the human experience from a child's perspective. And this is probably a little deeper conversation than I was really planning to go on. But I think sometimes we imagine what life was like when we were kids, as opposed to what life is like for our kids right now in the moment. And I know you and I have had some conversations about just like unpacking that and how empathy is such a critical skill in just life, right? And where we are in a pandemic and where we are in 2022, all of those things like empathy is a really core superpower to have right now. So can you share a little bit about how has empathy informed how you parent or taught you things or leaned into different things in parenting as opposed to business life? You know, I think business is probably more academic. You know, we can talk about product development, but how is this a critical skill for parents? And I think you're right around, you know, that's my MO is always, I'm never an expert in anything. Yeah, I just want to continue to learn and challenge my assumptions and then things change and evolve. So as you position this as having empathy superpower, do I? What does that even mean? Right? Like, I don't feel qualified to have that title, but I think you know, the perspective taking is a big one. And it goes to kind of being a lifelong learner. So a willingness to even entertain an alternative viewpoint. You know, I'm able to change my mind when I discover better information or ideas is really a component of empathy that resonated with me. And I think that crosses over nicely into parenting, into being a father. In the intro, you talked about kind of being an aspiring feminist father, and I could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. It's really responsive fathering. So it's Mm -hmm. this participatory and adaptive way. It's witnessing and listening. It's having different responsibilities as opposed to being in a position of authority. So fathers are crucial role models for demonstrating things like sensitivity and compassion and empathy. And I think that's different than kind of the traditional way we think about parenting and being a father, masculine or paternal or dominant, aggressive or powerful or authoritative or laid on the law, right? Fathers know best. And trying to shift away from that, I read a really good book by Jordan Shapiro and it's Father Figure, How to Be a Feminist Dad. And I'm just starting the journey here, but the principles I think are important. And it is, you know, really kind of understanding their point of view and perspective and asking them questions that you don't know the answer to. Mm -hmm. Not asking them questions to see if they've heard you or they align on your beliefs, but what is it like to be you? What's it like to be an eight-year-old today? What was it like to miss a year and a half of school and, and do virtual school for first grade? I have no idea what that's like. So just sitting down and saying that, I am curious about what it's like. I have conversations with my son about 
what is it like to be a fifth grader today? What does that look and feel like? And just understanding how they think about things to give them confidence that they have their mind and they have their own viewpoints. And I don't need to agree with everything. I don't want to agree with everything, but I just want to understand them. So it's, you know, witness and listen and support your child's unique journey throughout instead of saying, here's how we do things here. There's only one way to do this and here's how we do it. This is new to me. So I'm leaning into it. I'm certainly not an expert. And if you asked them, they'd be like, you always tell us what to do. (laughs) I don't know know what this concept is, but you still tell us what to do. So it's a work in progress, but it's something that I think this thought about being more empathetic, you can do that well, I think, because it's a more effective approach. And all the research says that the empathetic child-centered approach to parenting is more effective than this rigid disciplinarian one. Mm Mm-hmm. And I don't think many of us were raised that way, right? There's so much of like what you said is learned by doing or by through your own experiences. And the more we are exposed to these opportunities, the better we can get. And I apologize. I don't think you have to be an expert in empathy or have this as a superpower. I think the power of empathy is maybe the superpower in that, you know, I think of just where I am today and all the diverse opinions. And it seems like you either have to be on one side or the other. And I just have never. I've never been a binary person. Like I don't stand on one side or the other very often on many issues. And so as someone who stands pretty firmly in the middle on a lot of things, I feel like I've had to practice empathy to understand like, where are you coming from? What is it that is your truth? And for sure in parenting, right? What have you heard? What's informing? What's the story behind that comment or that belief or that statement? That I think is where the superpower is, right? Is really that ability to hear and listen to people from maybe a different perspective. That's it. That's it for sure. Uh, Especially when we look at kind of this place of privilege that we come from, that Mm -hmm. I come from. When I look at formal education and sexuality and citizenship and gender and wealth and kind of put that into comparison into the broader scheme to say, for sure people have different points of view, perspective based on lived experience. How could they not? How do I understand that more? It's not right or wrong. It's what they believe. And to have a conversation about that and to understand where they're coming from with their point of view, I'm with you. It's the perspective-taking aspect of it, Uh, willingness to learn and to understand that we're different because we're different, and that's okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Let's take this into our adventure experiences, because I think part of what I've always said is adventure is not always the doing, right? It's the being. And it's easy to look at adventure and be like, oh, that's what I want to do with my life. It's interesting. I've been on this journey of designing my life for years. I'm not going to be done, right? It's going to be an evolution. And I think that's part of what I like and how design thinking's really helped me shape my life is that it's a constant feedback loop, right? We try things, we test them out, we think about things, we feel things, we experience things, and then we go, oh, how did that feel? Did that fit good? Did it work for us? And that, I think, is where the power of this framework has really helped me design a different type of lifestyle than one that I thought was the society narrative of what it means to be a 40-year-old woman today, (laughs) you know? Can you talk a little bit about you know, after empathy, after we have empathy as really a skill and we build it, how do you use that information? How do you test that information? How do you experience things differently from that? Or how do you use that information to really frame your experiences? Yeah. What happens next, right? Once you feel those feelings, what do you do about them? 
for me is then a better understanding of what you want to do, what adventure looks like. If you can have honest and open, candid conversations with those that you want to adventure with, uh, family, that opens it up so much more. And then you're open to learning things along the way, too. It's not this adventure that mom and dad planned, and we have to do all of these things on the list. It is we built this together. So I think it's the collaboration, the radical collaboration, then with what comes next. If we're in a workshop and we're building something, then we're making a plan and we're sketching out concepts of things we want to build. In the adventure, it would be, what does that adventure look like? Everybody brings their point of view and perspective and has a say in what that looks like. And then you go and do it. And then Mm -hmm. you test it out and you see if it works. And then you kind of share those learnings. And to your point about that cycle, you make iterations for the next time that that happens. So I think I answered your question there in terms of kind of what, yeah, (laughs) what that looks like, how you do it. Oftentimes it's kind of getting over that initial hurdle of doing something. And that's what the human-centered design, design thinking workshops are designed to do is kind of build this finite time and space to do something. And then you do it and then you go out and you get feedback on it, knowing that it's not going to be perfect. You don't want it perfect after your first iteration. Yeah. Thank you. I think that reminds me of I have this, I'm writing a book and there's a section in the book where I talk about knowing, doing, and being. And, you know, I think I'll just use myself as an example. When I'm really uncomfortable with something, I tend to really feel like, oh, I need to learn more. I need to learn more. And it's this innate feeling that I'm not good enough in order to do the thing, right? So starting a podcast, I needed to study, 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 study. And actually, I've learned when I don't know all the answers and I'm willing to test something more quickly, I actually find it more beneficial than trying to what I do. (laughs) I call it collecting gurus. There's really little value in me collecting more gurus because all that does is add to the overwhelm and it kind of reinforces that I'm not good enough. Whereas when I start testing something, it makes me see and experience like, oh, okay, number one, that wasn't so bad. And number two, I can figure out the next step now. Now I know like, oh, I don't have to have 12 steps figured out. I figured out step one. My only role now is to figure out step two. And I think as a society, we have maybe just been told the narrative or expected to like have everything figured out before you start. And that maybe is the power of this, you know, first it's empathy, but then it's testing. Like, okay, now go, go do some action, screw it up if you need to learn from it and iterate. And then learn again and learn again. You know, it's a cycle of repeating and trial and error and testing different things that has helped me get to this place of, like I said, you know, who do I want to be? Well, I don't know yet. Everything I thought I wanted to be, when I get there, I'm like, is this really what I want to be? I think, you know, even in the in the ladder of success is like, what is success now? Well, I thought it was this. You know, I thought it meant I had a good job and had a great title and I had all these things. But yet today I'm like, I don't know, I have those things. Does that mean I'm successful? I don't know. Do I like this feeling of success? What do I think about that? So it's been a very fascinating journey for me just to even realize that, okay, number one, it's not about knowing everything. It's not about having everything planned out. It's about taking that first step and then learning from it and then really questioning, how do I feel about this? Is this really in alignment with what I thought it was going to be versus what it actually was. Have you had any interactions? I know you are on a path and I haven't announced this actually in your intro, but you are no longer working in corporate. You are kind of testing what success looks like in your own life. 
Have you had feelings or what has that experience been like of testing what is success for you now versus maybe what you thought it was 20 years ago? Yeah, all the feelings, right? <laughs> that, the, the experiment, experimentation mindset that you mentioned resonated. Just try it. And, and I don't know where that comes from necessarily. You mentioned kind of that's ingrained in us as a society. How do we change that narrative? How do we make it safe to fail? The kind of that psychological safety that goes around with, you know, not feeling that you're good enough and then not even wanting to try something new because of that. For me, for sure, it came down to a measurement of success and what that even looks like. The pandemic gave me a chance to pause and think and understand what's most important. And for me, that was family and that was happiness and that was mental health. So for a long time, for 15 plus years since I graduated college, I jumped into a corporate job, didn't look down or didn't pause. And that was just kind of what I did and what I thought work was. And for me, kind of how I was taught to measure success or how that happened, how that manifested was kind of this pie chart with half of it being salary and half of it being job title. And that's what I drove towards and because that's what I thought success was and that's what I thought was important. Yeah. A better measure, and this comes from Liz and Molly meme, which is kind of the more holistic pie graph where it's things like we introduce things like mental health and physical health to what success mm-hmm. looks like. Liking what you do and having free time make up some of that pie chart. And then kind of real small pieces of that pie are things like salary and job title. Yeah. So when I saw that visually, it took me a pause to say, that's it, right? What if I invested time and energy in other places and still kind of rallying around how to have a big impact with that time and energy that you dedicate to what we formally call work? But I didn't know any different. For a long Mm -hmm. time, I didn't know any different. I thought that that was what work was. So now exploring what freelance looks like, exploring what being a consultant looks like, building an LLC where I can practice human-centered design and design thinking, and then also spending more time in things like being a dad, dropping kids (laughs) off from school, you know, just dedicated time to doing that, doing some more volunteer work having free time and being okay with free time. One of the things that we talked about in the past was how much time do we dedicate to work mm-hmm. and what does that look like and how much control do we have over that while still kind of having a desire to make an impact and do meaningful work. So for me, it was around finding more balance and, and understanding what that looks like. And then to our point earlier around, I didn't have it all figured out. Mm-hmm. When I resigned, I knew there were a bunch of things that I wanted to do and I was looking for balance and I started doing those things. And I continued to do those things. And then the plan kind of manifests. One of the things I learned and try to remember is it's that journey. It's not looking back and saying, wow, that's what success was. It is in the moment, day to day, uh, week to week. Are you learning new things? Are you making an impact? Are you having fun? Can you appreciate the journey in real time is something that I strive for and aspire for. That's great. Yeah. I had a very... 
I don't know. I've had a couple of life experiences. I call them like my quarter life crises or my falling apart or falling together. I don't know what it, whatever you want to call it, but it's interesting how sometimes when things are disrupted, you notice, right? When things are going smooth and life is just happening, you don't always notice what are the things that are taking my time and energy. I was taught, gosh, it was a long time ago, but I remember a facilitator in conflict resolution. We were working through some team culture issues. And I remember this facilitator saying, if every day is a pie, and you only have so much energy in that pie, right? Who are you going to give the biggest slice to? Are you giving the biggest slice of your energy to work? And what is that doing with the rest of your energy for the rest of the day? Because a lot of times in conflict, you're really stewing around things, right? You're spending a lot of time thinking about, you know, all of the crisis modes and, you know, fight or flight. I mean, there's a lot of neuroscience that goes behind it, but it's interesting because I took that and said, well, gosh, if my life is a pie, what slices do I want to show up? Even though that was conflict resolution, it was for work it actually changed my entire language around what success started to mean for me. Because I too was like, why is work getting half of my pot? I don't like that idea. And it also was part of the reason why adventure showed up in my life. Because I was like, why is adventure the last thing on the list? That when everything else is accomplished, when every to-do list item is done, or when I hit this deadline, or when I hit this benchmark, then I adventure. That's not really the best person I could be, right? I need it to be more consistently showing up in my life because it's the best version of who I am. And that's what success looks like, right? It's not about a title or a job or a salary. You know, like you said, it wasn't just those two metrics. There's a lot of different metrics. And I also learned that each slice of the pie, they sometimes you can optimize them, right? I could be adventuring and have success and I could be a mom and have success, you know? So it's interesting how when you learn a different language and you're given tools to realize I don't have to accept this narrative. I can really redefine what success looks like. It's a really powerful experience, but it's not easy. (laughs) Like you said, there's a lot of feelings in that. You and I have similar interests. We've talked for years. Have you found that you're spending time and energy in different places that are bringing you joy and you just are doing less of the rest? Or are you still trying to figure that out? Some really good points there. And I think your point around you're better off in all of the areas once you're more balanced. You're better at work if you have free time. Mm-hmm. You're better, you're more present with your kids if you have outlets for mental health and physical health. So I think that's huge to find that balance and to make time to spend in each one of those areas. And taking a step back and evaluating where you are in those areas. Yeah, for me, it started around kind of self-care and self-awareness. And that's the exploration for me around what success looks like. So (laughs) for a long time, I didn't do anything for myself other than maybe spend time or spend time out with friends. So things like massage and yoga and meditation helped me really understand the feelings that I was feeling and helped me understand where I'm spending my energy. And from there then, I'm spending more time with my kids and my family. Mm -hmm. I'm spending more time in leisure and not feeling guilty about it, Mm. where my mind wanted to wander into solving that next challenge at work or figuring out that next thing or figuring out why we're stuck. And I think I still have work to do in those areas to kind of find that balance, spending more time on physical health and prioritizing that piece as well. So I think your question was around, are you doing it? How is it manifesting? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
and I don't have it all figured out, right? I'm not right. here to stand up and say, well, it was easy. You just have to quit your corporate job and everything works out. That's not the case <laughs> necessarily. Uh, yeah. But it has allowed me to play in the different spaces to figure out where it makes sense to spend that finite time and energy and resource that we have. And then also to maybe be a little bit more self-aware in terms of where you're giving energy and where you're getting energy and to find Mm -hmm. more of a balance there. Yeah. It's interesting as you have gone now from thinking about this, right? I'm thinking about leaving my corporate job. I'm more aware about self care and it's showing up a little bit more presently. Were there key elements that, you know, it's almost like, how do you keep your fears down? Because a lot of times your fear and anxiety will rise up and take a lot of your energy and distract you. And when you were going through this transition, were there key things that helped you keep that fear or that anxiousness or am I making the right decision kind of at bay that allowed you to go, okay, this is the right step for me. This is the next thing going from thinking to action. Were there any key items for you that were really important? A support network that I've been vulnerable with in the past and that I have really strong relationships with in terms of just having a sounding board to say, Mm -hmm. here's what I'm feeling. Here's what I'm thinking. Push on it. Help me think about this differently. Tell me that I'm not thinking about this right or challenge my perspective on this, right? I think Mm -hmm. it goes back to some of the things that we talked about around empathy and human-centered design is I'm willing to understand different people's perspective on this and need to do that. So for me, it was that that was probably most influential was having folks in my network that I communicated with regularly on what I was thinking about, what I was feeling, and the why behind that. The other piece of it, I think, is around this ability to take risks, Mm. this desire to take risks, how to do it safely, how to de-risk this. And I think it also ties back to some of the things we talked about around the elements of design thinking. It is sketch out what you want to do. What are the concepts that you will do if you don't have this? How will that work? What are the steps that you can take to move these along? I don't think you're ever 100% ready or you're ever going to cross off all of those potential things that could go wrong or could go sideways. But I think it's kind of being self-aware of where you're at and then building that confidence up to say, here are all the things you can try. Try it and enjoy that journey. Go do it because there's safety nets along the way. Yeah. For me, there were, I was fortunate enough to have kind of that space and some safety nets in place. And I think it's about having confidence in yourself. And for me, it was around what I describe as the inner critic, that voice. It's the person inside that says, you're not good enough, or this will never work, or you're doing this wrong, or why would you throw that away? And being able to quiet and critique that inner voice to say, here's what I thought about, and here are the reasons why I'm doing it. So quiet down and tell me that I'm good enough. Tell me that I can do this. Give me reasons to do that. And that was important for me, but it was built around kind of things that I was already thinking about along with other human beings that were helping support me uh, through this journey. Thank you for sharing that because I think that's a vulnerable state where a lot of people get stuck is feeling that this is too risky. What am I doing? Your inner critic can be really loud and having a support network is really critical. And I think, you know, it's interesting because 
I remember embarking on this journey and going, gosh, I'm weird. <laughs> I'm not normal. And I just, I had to come to terms with that. And I still say it all the time. Like, yeah, but I'm not normal. I have to recognize that this isn't a vision that most people in my network understand or will see. And my vision of my future is very different than their vision of their future. Did you have any, I guess for lack of a better word, did you have any naysayers that said like, that's a horrible idea? Or did you have others that just kind of, I would say almost like had confirmation bias? Like, oh yeah, I'm hearing what I want to hear from them because that's what I want to hear. Did you ever find yourself on that path where you're saying, oh, these people just are naysayers and they don't understand where my vision is? Or on the other side, did you have people that you felt like maybe weren't being authentically honest with you in that process? Or did you have enough trust in this network that you felt like, nope, I trust whatever they're saying? Yeah. And how well you know your network and kind of the different relationships with who is in your network. I had three or four people that I trusted what they would say. I knew that their feedback would be authentic. So that's who I went to initially and believed the strongest in. When you get outside of that, it's good to get opinions from other people. So I grew up and learned kind of survey research and opinion research to kind of have that foundational knowledge. Certainly there were people that said, don't you typically line something up before you resign? <laughs> Is it, isn't there a process here? And I would laugh that off and say, I mean, typically there's a lot of people do it that way. That's not the way that I'm lining this up. I, I didn't have anybody that said, you're crazy for doing this. What are you doing? I think because of the established relationships and the way that I think about things, I had a lot of people say, well, you're not one to make decisions you know, quickly or without research. So I trust that you did your due diligence here. I would be surprised to learn that this was just a spur of the moment thing, just kind of based on past behavior and personality and the way that I worked in the, in the past. So I was my biggest, likely, very biggest naysayer. The inner critic was able to quiet that down. I don't have anybody that stood out to say, yeah, maybe my parents, maybe my dad said, <laughs> said let's talk about like what you're doing next. Uh, so that would be an example of someone that said, maybe you need to give this a little bit more thought. Or maybe he positioned it as, I'd like to understand more about your next role. And I said, <laughs> well, 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 good question, because I'm, I'm figuring that out right now. And it wasn't maybe as black and white as he wanted it or needed it to be just kind of based on his comfort level with it. But it was a good conversation and he was supportive along the way. Yeah. Talking about that reminded me of that one that said, maybe you're not quite ready yet because I don't understand it or you haven't communicated to me what that next role is. And I said, dad, I'm building it right now. I'll let you know. I'll let you know how it goes, but has been and will continue to be a supporter and on my side on this one. Yeah. Thank you. I think that's a piece that it's easy to feel like, oh, not yet. Oop, not yet. There's a, I'll be really transparent. I'm on this journey of figuring out that next phase. And it's funny because every time we get really close of, you know, like, okay, let's go, let's do this. There's a fear that pops up. The inner critic is really loud. And I, I'll go like, ah, maybe we don't have enough money, or maybe we don't have enough this, or maybe we should go one more year. It's so easy to just dismiss <laughs> the opportunity and be like, ah, the safety life over here, this this stability feels really good. Am I really wanting to do that? What was your timeline? How long did it take you to go from, oh, I think I'm going to do this or I'm listening and really aware to the point of, I did it. <laughs> I did this big, scary thing and leading into that. Probably six months when I think about it. Certainly yeah. the pandemic changed things 
for me, and I view it as an opportunity in terms of what work was and what work felt like. Burnt out on virtual meetings. I was Mm -hmm. burnt out on the way that we were communicating with each other. I was burnt out in terms of kind of the progress and the impact that we were able to make. And it's difficult to lead a team as well through that kind of 18 plus month timeframe from start to finish on a pandemic. So I needed to press pause and figure out what was next for me. And then it was, okay, if you're going to move, what will that look like? When is the right time to do it? Is there a right time to do it? What do you need to line up in order to feel like you have your ducks in a row to press go on it? There's also value and a driving force for me, at least, of, okay, well, if you resign, then you have a 90-day window to figure things out. And that is what I used kind of as a finite timing to say, here are the different paths, right? You mapped up all your different paths. Which ones do you want to do? In theory, which ones do you want to prioritize? Can you make that work in that 90 to 120 day time frame? And I think that helped me think about it. Your point about it's so easy to delay. There will never be a perfect time. If you're taking a risky decision, if you're taking a leap, there's no way that you can be 100% confident. And if you are, then it's probably not a risky enough leap, right? It's Mm -hmm. not something that you're changing or you're not disrupting that piece of it. So for me, it was about six month time frame in whole and the timing was right. Uh, The timing, it worked out. The timing was right for me. That's great. That's awesome. Is there anything if someone is, I mean, we've talked a lot about a lot of stuff (laughs) that I'm like, oh, we talked a lot. Empathy. We've talked about human-centered design, about test-taking, about, you know, trying different experiments, the feedback loop and parenting. If there was something that a listener is like, this is intriguing. I want to learn more about the framework that he used, the way that he thinks about things. You know, I think about some of the lessons learned just by testing and experimenting. Is there a way people can do this? Do you have resources that can guide people through a process or can they reach out to you? What would be the best way for them to connect? Yeah, both. I will provide some resources about my contact information, my LinkedIn information. It's a bunch of good, free resources and thinking. There are folks that are doing this in a bunch of different applications. You can use it as a team setting and work. There's a great book around designing your life the Mm -hmm. human-centered way. The couple of books that I shared around empathy and parenting, fathering would be others as well. But I would say reach out on LinkedIn or through email, and I'm happy to share resources and have a conversation about how some of the stuff might help what you're going through. Yeah, I appreciate that, Eden. It's so fun to have these conversations and to see people moving through and testing through and trying things and knowing that it's not all perfect, right? Like you said, there's a lot of emotions that goes with this and building a network to help support you through it and understanding and thinking about things differently has really been a key learning for me too, as you've shared your story and I've watched you through this journey. So thank you so much for sharing this. Anything else you want to share before we sign off for today? Oh, it was great. Thanks for having me on, Heidi. No problem. Thank you so much, Eden.